0: So Anissa, when you hear mind over matter, what does that mean for you? Have you ever applied it in your life? I think I know the answer. I think it's yes.
1: Yeah. So to me, it's kind of the idea of using willpower to overcome any perceived or real physical limitations, which, by the way, is what Urban Dictionary defines it as. And literally, I use it all the time when it comes to physical exercise, particularly when it comes to running. So honestly, like I've been running for seven years now and despite countless half marathons and one full marathon, I still find it really difficult to make myself go for a run because usually I go in the morning, I'm still half asleep or I go at the end of the day at work and it just seems really painful. Like the first 10 to 15 minutes, sometimes 30, it's not enjoyable and if I only listen to my body, I'll quit every time. So I have to kind of get my mind to override my sore legs and keep going to get to the point where I actually do enjoy it. I find
0: it's really fascinating about runners that they're like, yeah, I hate it. <laughs> like I'm doing this thing for like 30 minutes every day that I absolutely hate. And I'm like my first response is like, why are you doing it? <laughs> it's a mental challenge and not a physical one, but it just it seems so physical to me. When I think about running 26.2 miles, I don't imagine the mental strength as much as the physical strength and like how sore your legs must be. Okay,
1: I will say that your legs do get very sore at a certain point. It doesn't matter what you tell your brain, your legs are just going to be sore. But for me, it's not about kind of tricking myself to think, that I'm not sore. It's more like, okay, I know it's painful. I'm going to keep going. My brain's not saying like, hi, pain, go away. My brain's saying, okay, pain, let's just hang out together until we finish the rest, shall we? And then we can go and lie down and not get up
0: for a day. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. The idea that you can like know something is painful and unpleasant and not think about okay I have to push through it or how am I going to endure this or anything like that and just think about like yep I'm in pain that's okay like it just seems so weird to me and I've only ever run like a 5k so the training was not anywhere near as intense as a marathon and you know I just kind of I didn't do it when I didn't want to do it you know I can't relate in that way but I will say that when I When I was pregnant and I was taking childbirth classes, we were learning all the different non-medical methods to deal with pain. And there was one thing that the instructor said that kind of always stuck with me. She said, usually when you are in pain, your body is like telling you that something is wrong. But this is a productive pain and it's like a pain that has a purpose and it's, you know, you're, you're in it for a reason. Yeah, I mean, from what I've heard of childbirth, it seems way more painful than a marathon. Welcome to Secrets of the Most Productive People, a productivity podcast where we try to figure out how to work smarter instead of harder. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. And I'm Fast Company Assistant Editor, Anisa Purvisari-Hodan.
1: This week, we're talking about the power of the brain on your actions. Can you really overcome anything if you choose to put your mind to it? Well, in addition to our personal experiences, we actually have seen plenty of evidence and research about the fact that our brain does influence our physical capabilities much more than we expect.
0: So at Fast Company, we've written a lot about the power of the brain. And many of the research does show that our brains have the power to push us further than what we think we're capable of. And that applies to physical activities like we were talking about. But it also applies to mental activities like mastering a language or solving a complicated problem.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned learning a language because I didn't start speaking English until I was nine years old, which is when my family moved from Indonesia to New Zealand. And even at that age, I didn't think I'd be fluent within a year of living there, but I was. And I knew this because I recently found a diary of my 10-year-old self and I was writing complete sentences in English.
0: Learning a language in a year is huge, But I guess, I mean, that's kind of like what you always hear, right? Is like the way to learn a language is to totally immerse yourself in it. But then I also want to know what your 10-year-old self wrote, like what these diaries look like. Yeah, it was a lot of cringeworthy 10-year-old
1: problems. (laughs) (laughs) There was one thing that came across, you know, amongst all those cringeworthiness, which was that I was determined to speak conversational English, and I was also determined to do it in the accent that my peers were speaking. You know, kids are mean and they tease you if you don't speak their language. Um, So this isn't scientific by any means, but I think that because I was forced To do that, my brain was telling me that I needed to do this as a survival method. I became fluent pretty quickly, and I even ended up excelling in subjects like English and history, and now I'm in journalism. My brain could have been responsible for driving me to do activities that pushed me to learn the language faster, like... You know, I remembered reading a lot of novels, even though I didn't understand what they meant. And I forced myself to talk, even when I knew that it sounds stupid.
0: So let's look at the science behind what your amazing ten-year-old brain might have had to experience. Research shows that we actually naturally underestimate our abilities to do things. There was this famous 2006 study where researchers looked at the brains of London taxi drivers, and I think this was, you know, without GPS and Google Maps and all that. These taxi drivers had to navigate the cities for years. And uh, London taxi drivers are famous for like knowing every single street. And they actually found that the part of their brain that deals with spatial relationships and also the part that deals with long-term memories, that part of their brain actually grew in size. So in other words, their brains literally physically changed from having to navigate the London streets so much.
1: Yeah, I mean, London's not a small city. And I can imagine that when that's your job literally depends on you knowing the streets of London, that's enough motivation to force your brain to get better at directions and memorizing.
0: Of course, that research also highlights the importance of focus and, you know, like you and deliberate practice. And, you know, like you, you might have relied on your mental strength to finish the full marathon, but you still had to train for it too. It was still a process. But like you said, you relied on your brain to get you out the door and to the practice every day.
1: Yeah, and I think this kind of goes back a little bit to our previous two episodes about willpower and New Year's resolutions because for me to get out of the door, my brain needs to agree with my body and if it doesn't, then I have to trick it and I kind of do that by making it a non-negotiable aspect of my routine. So I pack my clothes beside my bed so that when I wake up is the first thing I see and it's kind of just sitting there and it makes me feel guilty if I don't go out of the door and I literally guilt and shame my brain into running most mornings because if I don't follow through, then I just can't take the personal shame. And then another example, 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 you know, you and I are highly motivated by deadlines. And if you think about it, most of the time we set those deadlines ourselves. And I find that for me, it's a way to trick my brain into working. You know, I try not to do last minute work, but when I have to, my writer's block suddenly disappears when I only have 24 hours to finish a story or a project. I'm
0: very deadline driven for myself. And as an editor, I'm very deadline driven. But I find that I'm not a last minute person. And so my trick, I do this with other people too, is that I lie to myself and give myself like a fake deadline and so that way there's a cushion yeah yeah so I think this is a good place for this episodes you might want to write this down how can we harness the power of our brains to push us to do things that we might not feel like doing or that we think that we're not capable of press pause and get a pen ready because you might want to write this down number one
1: focus on enjoying the process so in an updated edition of drawing on the right side of the brain, art teacher Betty Edwards wrote that most people can get better at drawing if they're willing to study the techniques. So Edwards said, for example, the skill that most people lack like is actually seeing and perceiving things like edges and shadows rather than the drawing itself. Of course, this requires patience, and one way to cultivate it is to try and detach yourself from the outcome and just focus on
0: the process. Number two, practice in low stakes situations. Obviously, you won't run a competitive race without training you work up to it and you get comfortable you can do this when you need to push yourself out of your comfort zone for things like public speaking as well
1: number three give yourself no choice but to do it sometimes it's just a matter of exposing yourself as often as you can you won't get good at networking if you don't force yourself to talk to strangers every now and again and your language skills aren't going to get better if you don't force yourself to
0: have conversations even when you think that you might sound stupid this episode of Secrets of the Most Productive People is brought to you by Citrix. We talk a lot on this show about how technology has made our working lives more complicated and distracted, which is why Citrix is working hard to make workplace technology seamless. Citrix digital workspaces have one user experience and login across devices and networks, adding a little simplicity into a crazy complicated world so you can focus your energy on something bigger. Learn more at citrix.com how. And I think that's a good place for us to introduce our guest for today. Dr. Tara Swart is a neuroscientist, medical doctor, leadership coach, and Fast Company contributor. She's the lead author of the award-winning book Neuroscience Leadership, Harnessing the Brain Gain Advantage, and The Source, Open Your Mind, Change Your Life, which came out in February of this year. I had the opportunity to speak with her this afternoon, and it was a fascinating conversation. I'm very excited to talk to you about this. I want to start with the recent article that you wrote in the Daily Mail about training your brain to make things happen. Can you start by talking about your personal experience?
2: Sure. So the article in the Daily Mail was actually an extract from my book where I start out by talking about my career change and um, a set of big personal changes in my life. So moving countries, getting divorced, um, finding a new place to live and starting up a new career. So... At that time, I had been a psychiatrist for seven years, and I was about to start training as an executive coach. So it was a big sort of change in how I was thinking. But it was also surrounded by a lot of changes around me that were quite stressful, like um, moving countries, having to find somewhere new to live and um, becoming single after quite a long time. So basically, I looked back at the experiences that some of my patients had had um, when I was working as a psychiatrist and sort of thought, I can really now see how if you didn't understand what was going on in your brain, in your body, you could get seriously stressed out and sort of, you know, feel that the situation was unmanageable. So I tried to put together the combination of my knowledge from being a medical doctor, um, my application of neuroscience to business And just everything that I'd learned in my upbringing, I have an Indian cultural heritage, um, and just sort of, you know, through life wisdom and the reading that I'd done, and put it together to create this new sort of guidebook for navigating life's challenges, which I'm calling The Source. Um, And it sort of works on six main principles, which are that if you can master your emotions, know yourself, which means listen to your body, trust your gut, which is your intuition, um, make good decisions, stay motivated and resilient, then you can actually create your life because this is based on the science of what we know about neuroplasticity, which is the ability for us to change our brain pathways and therefore our behavior patterns and the choices that we make in life.
0: That's amazing. Can you explain why that is or how that works or what happens in the brain? How does the brain kind of master these, these big things that it seems impossible?
2: learning a language is basically building a new pathway in your brain. But the really exciting thing is that it doesn't have to be for something as obvious as learning a new skill. It can be related to something like becoming more resilient to stress or becoming more emotionally intelligent. So basically any behavior that you want to bring into your life or change, just think of it as the same kind of hard work as learning a language. And actually it probably takes about the same time and is about as difficult. And, um, but you know, we don't really sit around and say, I'll allocate an hour a week to becoming more emotionally intelligent, but we can think of it in that way. Then I think the final piece is the most exciting one. And this is you know where the sort of cutting edge research from cognitive sciences comes in. Um, and it's about the fact that actually the state that your brain is in, so preferably keeping your brain in an optimized state can actually physically make a difference to your body. So my favorite experiment is um, one that was done on groups of people in their eighties. It was recreated as a a UK television show called The Young Ones. Um, So they had three groups of people in their eighties. One group carried on their normal life. One group were asked to reminisce about what it was like when they were in their sixties for a week. And the third group were asked to actually move into homes that had been recreated to look like their homes did 20 years ago. Um, Any photos of them were replaced with younger photos. If they didn't use glasses or walking sticks or reading glasses 20 years ago, these were removed for a week. In both the groups that thought differently or actually acted differently, there were improvements in visual acuity and musculoskeletal coordination. More so in the group that lived as they had 20 years ago, but some actually quite interesting changes in the people that just reminisced about being 20 years younger. So I think that's pretty incredible. Um, there are lots of other experiments like that I can go into if you'd like me to. Oh, my God, yes.
0: It's so fascinating. <laughs> I'm just like, you know, I think that just speaks so strongly to exactly what we're talking about, the power of the brain mm. to, I mean, it sounds like a trick, like it sounds like a magic trick. But why and how does that happen? How can your eyesight improve? from just pretending or thinking about being younger when you had better eyesight?
2: You know, I've thought about this a lot. And obviously there's a very detailed scientific um, explanation I could give you for this. But in my own personal experiences, which we started talking about, and then with the research that I do, I often find that when you don't have a choice, then your brain does adapt. Mm. So these people couldn't have their glasses for a week, so they, and they had to get on with their lives. And what we see is that the brain is like, it's a very active map that's growing and changing all the time. So let me give you a longer term example. Let's say you grew up speaking. Let's say you grew up bilingual from a young age, and then you learned another language at school. So let's say you grew up speaking English and Spanish, and then later you learned um, Portuguese at school. If when you're an adult and you're now working you never speak Portuguese anymore, you, you know, speak English at work and you sometimes speak Spanish when you're with your family, then the pathway in your brain for Portuguese would shrink with disuse. The pathway for Spanish, um, it's been there for a long time, but it doesn't get used as much, so it would shrink a little bit. And the pathway for English, the language that you're using every day, that you're using in a really sophisticated way, would actually grow and take over some of that space. We know that monkeys that have their dominant arm um, restricted in a sling for two weeks that and then use a, a non-dominant arm to groom and feed themselves that the, the map in the brain for their left arm grows and takes over some of the space that the uh, right or dominant arm used to have so basically our brains are dynamic and they're changing all the time and it's the experiences that we put ourselves through that can change our brain either for the better or if we don't think about it it could be having a negative effect
0: Oh, that is so fascinating, and that that, that example of handedness um, I know has play, played out a generation or two ago um, in the States, and I don't know if if this happened other places. I'm left-handed, and my, both of my parents were left-handed, but at that time um, they believed being left-handed was sinister or bad in some oh way, God. so they forced uh, them to be, become right-handed as mm. kindergartners, and I mm. think uh, both of them— could not write with their left hand, you know, as as adults, but maybe had, it sounds like they, they had that ability somewhere in them. And if they had to, it could grow again.
2: I mean, it's, it's horrible, really, to think about forcing children to write with their non-dominant hand. But it was the same in the UK with bilingualism. Mm. We thought that if children had to operate in two languages from a young age, that it was confusing, and it reduced their vocabulary and even their intelligence. But actually, we know now, and the big difference, of course, is that we can scan brains so we can really see what's going on, that being bilingual has so many benefits for your brain, not just the fact that you have two or more languages that you can speak, but it actually improves the executive functioning of the brain. You're more able to manage your emotions, to suppress your biases, to think flexibly and creatively and solve complex problems. So, you know, it's just as the science progresses and we know more, there's so much more that we can get out of our brains. And that's what's so exciting.
0: Yeah, it's really, really interesting. So it sounds like one of the, the kind of um, big misconceptions that people may have about their brains is that like, well, it's just this is how it is. And and this is, you know, a fixed thing, or I know what I know, and or I can't do things. Are there other big myths or misconceptions that people have about the way that their brains can influence their actions or their the outcomes in their lives?
2: Yeah, so there's a couple of neuro myths which I do mention in the book, and I'll start with those and then I'll sort of bring it more up to date, like what we can do with our lives now. So we used to think um, that the brain was very lateralized, so that there was a left half and a right half, and that there were certain functions were in one half and certain functions were in the other. So, for example... Being creative or logical or being mathematical versus sort of being, you know, doing more creative writing sorts of activities.
0: Oh, yes, that that people are either left brained or right brained. And if you're one, then you're creative. And if you're the other, you're analytical. And it was sometimes, I heard, also tied to handedness, to like left people are, left handed people are more creative and use the right side of their brain, that sort of thing, right?
2: Yeah, that sort of thing. So, you know, the thing about these sorts of what I call neuro myths is that there's some truth to them. So, more left-handed people will have a dominant right brain and more right-handed people will have a dominant left brain, but it's not every left-handed or right-handed person that's like that. And and it certainly doesn't have a direct correlation to um, you know, what sort of personality or preferences they have in, in terms of their capabilities. Um, another one that goes along with this myth is that we only use 10% of our brains. I mean, so basically... The whole left-right thing is actually, it's a, like I said, it's a complex dynamic map. It's almost like a spaghetti junction. There's information moving around pathways from left to right, from bottom to top, from back to front, and vice versa. And there's hundreds and hundreds of networks and sub-sub subnetworks. Um, so we, we do use all of our brain, but we use different parts of the brain or different pathways in the brain at different times. So although I don't like the oversimplification of that 10% myth, I do like the fact that we can get more out of our brains if we really understand how it works. Um, So that kind of leads me on to your question about what can we do with our brains now that maybe we're not aware of. So a major one is um, that there was another popular sort of concept called amygdala hijack, which basically says that if you become very emotional for some reason, then your brain gets totally flooded with the hormones and the emotions and you can't control them.
0: Are there some things that we can do, and you've touched on this a little bit, as you know as we get older, um our brains kind of or us in general become kind of inherently lazy in our um, reactions and our routines and our and our tendencies. Are there kind of things that we can do on a regular basis to combat that?
2: Yeah. so actually, you know another one of the things that not everybody knows about how our brains work is that we used to think that the brain actively grew and changed till we were about eighteen and that you're kind of stuck with the personality that you have at that age. We now know that it changes in response to everything we experience. So every smell, every emotion, every person that we meet um, very actively till we're about 25. From 25 to 65, we do have to do things to keep it more, you know, the scientific term is plastic, but basically to keep it more flexible and open to change. And that's basically new learning. Any new learning that you take on physically changes your brain whether that's a language, a musical instrument or playing these brain training games that you can um, or just, you know, traveling, taking a different um, road to work. So, you know, keeping your brain stimulated with new experiences. As long as you start by your late 30s or early 40s, you can actually do quite a lot to prevent some of the decline that starts around age 70. Um, So, you know, it really brings us back to the mind over matter, which is that if you think about how you want to live your life, what you want your future to look like, then there are things that you can do. But most of us don't imagine ourselves as that old person that we will be one day. So we just get on with the day job mm-hmm. and don't really think about future proofing our brain.
0: And it, it sounds too like, you know, and that's that's a common thing that that people believe and you hear a lot is that it's so much easier to learn a musical instrument or a new language when you're a child and so much more difficult as an adult and it sounds like it's partly because as an adult you have to really kind of consciously force yourself into thinking about things differently and trying them out whereas it it comes more naturally when you're younger.
2: You know the brain is growing and changing more when we're younger so it's just more like a sponge it's continually mm-hmm. changing anyway so yes it is easier to learn when you're younger. Um, The reason that it's harder when you're older is actually that the pathways have become entrenched over time. So you've got more habits. And like you said, Mm. inherently lazy sort of default pathways that your brain goes down, because that's just the way that it's used to doing things. So you can absolutely still learn, you know, all these phrases like, can you teach an old dog new tricks? Can a leopard change its spots? Well, the neuroplasticity research says, yes, you can teach an old dog new tricks and a leopard can change its spots. So I think that's the biggest thing to take away if we each just pick one small thing that we'd maybe like to work on or change and just try to do a little something every day to move us closer to that then it's very empowering once you see the result of that so I have a personal example which is that it's actually been five years now since my um, optician told me that I would probably need reading glasses soon and So when I was first told this, I was a bit shocked because, you know, to me, that means you're old and I don't think of myself as old. So I thought, you know, I'm not ready for that to happen. So I said, no, 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 I really I don't want that to happen anytime soon. And he said, well, you know, you look younger than you are, but I can see the first signs of deterioration. But come back next year and we'll, you know, we'll do another eye test. So I came back the following year and he was doing the test. And then he spun around in his chair and said, what have you been doing? Because <laughs> your scores are not just the same as last year. They're actually better. And all I'd done was made my mind up that I didn't want, you know, I wasn't ready for that yet. And if I was reading something, you know, on my phone or in a uh, magazine, and I felt like it would be easier to move it a bit further away, I just didn't move it further away and made myself read it where it was. Hmm. Um, I do find the little clasps on necklaces are getting a bit tricky but like I said it's been five years and they basically signed me off now and said just
0: come back when you can't read things anymore easily. That's great I'm gonna try that with my grey hair I'm gonna see if I'm just going to will myself into not having grey hair anymore. Yeah I (laughs) haven't managed to make that one work yet so let me know if you do. (laughs) That's it for this week's episode of Secrets of the Most Productive People. How do you train your brain to do the things you think you can't do? Have you experienced any instances where controlling your thoughts influenced the kinds of actions you were willing to take? Let us know using the hashtag FCMostProductive.
1: Join us in two weeks when we'll be talking about whether creativity is the enemy of productivity. Do you have to give up one to achieve the other? Or can you strive towards one in order to engineer the other? In the meantime, you can find more brain related articles in the
0: show notes below and the three quick tips that we mentioned in the you-might-want-to-write-this-down segment. And in the meantime, you can follow Fast Company on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And don't forget to listen to our other podcast, Creative Conversation. This episode of Secrets of the Most Productive People is brought to you by Citrix. Chances are you've attempted to declutter and organize your home or office, but what about your digital clutter? Well, Citrix has us covered. With Citrix Digital Workspace, every file and app is in one place, so you can easily find what you need to knock out your never-ending to-do list. With Citrix, your work life can be as tidy as your home life. Learn more at citrix.com slash how.